Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Power 3.0 podcast, examining authoritarian resurgence and democratic resilience in an era of globalization. Power 3.0 is brought to you by the International Forum for Democratic Studies, the Ideas Center of the National Endowment for Democracy. I'm your host, Christopher Walker, Vice President for Studies and Analysis at the Endowment, recording from our studio in Washington, D.C. And I'm your co-host, Shanti Kalathal, Senior Director of NED's International Forum for Democratic Studies. Over the past few years, those of us who follow democracy trends at the global level have observed growing dissatisfaction with established political parties, leading to a crisis of confidence in parties, as well as other democratic institutions. This has been particularly noticeable in Europe and the Americas, where we've seen fragmentation of parties and a number of populist candidates elected, some of them espousing less than liberal values, and implementing policies that bypass constitutional and democratic checks on power. Hungary's Prime Minister Viktor Orban stands out for openly promoting the notion of illiberal democracy. At the same time, trend-setting authoritarian regimes, such as Russia and China, have become more ambitious and are more actively promoting illiberal policies at home and abroad. All of this is occurring at a time when the center of gravity for democracy has been shifting in a negative direction globally. To help us dig deeper into this trend and explore its implications for democracy, we've invited a distinguished colleague to serve as today's guest. It's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast Mark Plattner, our resident political philosophy expert and founding co-editor of the Journal of Democracy, here to discuss democracy and the illiberal temptation. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Mark, over the years, you've written a good deal about the condition of democracy and liberalism and have just published a thought-provoking article on illiberal democracy and the struggle on the right in the January 2019 issue of the Journal of Democracy. Before taking up some of the specific points in your article, I wonder if you could give us your take on why it is the center of gravity for political ideas seems to have shifted so markedly over the last decade or so. What, in your view, are the underlying reasons for these changes? Uh, the why is the hardest part to uh, explain. I think uh, one can identify the nature of the trends. You gave a good description in, in your opening uh, remarks. And I think there are two parallel developments, uh, hard to know what the causal relationship is, one of which is the surge in populism, uh, votes for more extremist candidates, candidates who are critical of liberalism. On the other hand, this has been made possible by the great decline in votes for the center-left and center-right parties that really for the last uh, many decades have dominated politics in the liberal democracies in Europe, uh, the United States, Latin America as well. So you've noted uh, in other writings, Mark, that the, the surge of populism that's occurred recently really first emerged outside the long-established democracies, and this is a, a global trend. So what should we make of that in terms of how we understand this populist surge? Uh, I think what the, that very important fact that you're citing, what it does is to render suspect any explanation uh, of what's happened that focuses solely on the United States or United States and Western Europe, um, things often having to do with the uh, 2008 financial crisis, the loss of manufacturing jobs, and so on. These things may play a role, 
but clearly in countries outside uh, North America and Western Europe, we've seen many of the same kinds of uh, trends. Think of Duterte in, in the Philippines, for example, uh, where those explanations really carry no weight. So let's get to your article for a second. You have a section discussing what you call the strange history of illiberal democracy, and you talk about the relevance of Fareed Zakaria's original 1997 foreign affairs piece to today's debate about illiberalism. Um, you posit that illiberal democracy was intended to be a term of disparagement, saying it, it wasn't a label that any regime sought, much less one whose banner it would be it would proudly fly. So can you walk us through that history a bit of illiberal democracy, the term, um, and then perhaps go into what's changed since then and why this matters? Okay, sure. Zakaria's uh, initial use of, of the term was based on the view, which I think was a true one, that Virtually all democracies in the period following the Second World War had been liberal democracies. They were advanced countries in Europe and uh, North America. So where you had governments that were not uh, liberal, they also were not democratic. Where you had governments that were not democratic, they were not liberal. But then what happened was the huge increase in the number of democracies, what to Sam Huntington called the third wave, beginning in the 1970s. So then democracy spread to countries that didn't have any tradition of liberalism, often not of uh, democracy either. And what Zakaria pointed to, and I think it was a, a, a sound observation, was suddenly we had all these countries that had adopted democratic elections as the means of selecting their ruler, but when those democratically elected rulers got into power, they didn't act in a liberal way. That means they didn't respect checks and balances, individual freedom, freedom of the press, and so on. So this was a new phenomenon um, due to the spread of democracy uh, to countries without a liberal tradition. And therefore, uh, Zakaria was saying, well, what do we do in such circumstances? And his argument was that it's a mistake to think that quickly introducing elections is the best route to liberal democracy. And he even suggested it might be better to proceed through a stage of liberal autocracy first. I think he had in mind the models of uh, uh, some of the East Asian countries. And then gradually... Uh, move in a more democratic direction after uh, considerable economic growth and other so-called prerequisites for liberal democracy had been achieved. But the premise of his argument was, one, that liberal democracy was the goal, and countries that got to democracy but without also attaining liberalism were in some sense failures, and that the goal would need to be to get all the way to liberal democracy. So as you mentioned, illiberal democracy, in his view, was a term of, uh, of disparagement, uh, not a label that, that countries would seek for themselves. So implicit in what you've said is the tension between the liberal and democratic elements of liberal democracy. And you've discussed this in JOD pieces uh, in 1998 and 1999 as well, um, that democracy and liberalism address two different questions, with democracy as an answer to the question of who rules, which requires that the people are sovereign, 
and liberalism prescribing not how rulers are chosen, but what the limits to their power are once they are in office. So previously, you've argued that there are powerful intrinsic links between electoral democracy and a liberal order. Have you seen the tension between these elements increase, given what we're talking about now and the current trends? Um, and why might this tension prove fertile ground for authoritarians in particular to exploit? Uh, I think it uh, has, in fact, uh, increased the, uh, the tension between liberalism and, uh, and democracy. Um, let me do a somewhat roundabout uh, uh, reply to, uh, to the question. When Zakaria was writing, it was liberalism, I would say, that was, everyone saw as the main goal. Democracy, in a way, was a means of getting to liberalism. What has happened since then, especially in the last decade or so, is that the prestige, the attractiveness of liberalism has declined, but democracy remains something that everyone, every government claims it adheres to. Um, and what this has enabled governments to do, Viktor Orban is... is the example I concentrate on, because he's certainly been the boldest and most straightforward in saying, we are democratic, that doesn't mean we have to be liberal. So he's taken illiberal democracy as a kind of slogan for what it is that uh, he stands for. And there's debate then among uh, analysts and political scientists, is it fair to say that He's, his regime is democratic if it's so illiberal and so on. And that, I think, there is an argument about which one can make a case either way. I tend to think that a liberal democracy is an appropriate uh, term for regimes like uh, that in Hungary. Larry Diamond, my co-editor, I think has a different view of that. He says it's uh, uh, giving them too much credit when their elections are so... Uh, on such an uneven playing field, um, perhaps they cease to be democratic. Um, and I think there's room for argument uh, at, uh, at the margins uh, about that. But I think what's clear is that in most cases, illiberal democracy proves to be a way station on the route to authoritarianism. Certainly that's what happened in uh, Venezuela, it's what happened in Russia, it's what happened in Turkey. Uh, there may be occasional cases where the uh, uh, tendency to move toward authoritarianism is reversed. Uh, Ecuador seems to be a case where that may be happening after President Correa was replaced. His successor seems to be undoing some of his uh, uh, liberal policies, but it's still a little bit early to tell whether that uh, will prove to be a good example. And Mark, the cases you just alluded to by just about any objective matter today have uh, profound problems on, on all counts in terms of how the systems are operating. Venezuela, I would put at the top of the list as a problem. One country we haven't discussed yet, but which plays a role in this discussion is China. Um, many see it as a success story in e economic terms. But at the same time, um, much of what the authorities in China pursue is illiberal in the sense that it does not safeguard individual rights. It does not 
um, as a rule, enable uh, free expression and so forth. So I wonder if you'd just say a word about the role of China in the larger discussion. Well, the interesting thing about China is that it uh, doesn't really pretend to be democratic. I mean, I guess at various points they've talked about democracy with Chinese characteristics. But they're one of the few countries in the world these days uh, that doesn't uh, choose its leaders through elections that at least uh, uh, it pretends to be free and fair. And I think the key to China's success really has been more on the, uh, the economic side. And it's been able, in a way that no other country except perhaps tiny Singapore has done, to achieve uh, enormous economic success without uh, having uh, a liberal democratic uh, government. And so would-be authoritarians or already existing authoritarians in other countries around the world see this as uh, an appealing option, that they can get the economic growth that virtually all of them want without having to take the risks that come with a political opening, introducing more liberal and democratic uh, uh, ways of government. And in a sense, the Chinese case, at least to date, given the ostensible growth they've enjoyed, um, observers will say uh, it's far easier to manage um, things politically when the economic going is good. It gets a lot tougher when the economic going is not so good, which may be, may be happening now. May yes. be happening now. But what does that tell us about the underlying assumptions of, say, uh, would-be autocrats or um, others in Africa, Latin America, and now increasingly parts of Europe about what this portends for those societies if they pursue um, the, the way station, as you put it? Uh, well, I think that's always been the question, is whether uh, countries like China or authoritarian countries, uh, uh, generally one thinks of the other East Asian tigers, uh, can continue to succeed economically if they don't open up politically. And of course, countries like South Korea and Taiwan did open up politically and uh, have been still quite successful uh, economically. Uh, this is going to be a critical test for China, I think, if in fact, as it appears, its uh, growth numbers are really uh, plummeting, or at least there are initial signs of that. Uh, how that affects the uh, the political system, I think, uh, you know, the next five years will probably give us uh, a readout on uh, on that larger question. So you have two things happening. You have China presenting itself as a model, and then you have these modern day liberals uh, pointing to it as a model and saying, "Hey, look!" Like Orban has said, you know, cited the China model and Singapore and so on as as um, things to to emulate. So you have that on the one hand, and on the other hand, then you have Russia, which is doing the the converse almost. It's discrediting liberal democracy as a model. Um, and uh, you know, I wanted to get a sense from you about whether you think how is the combination of the positive attraction of a China model and the negative influence of Russia on the attractiveness of liberal democracy. How is that feeding into a liberal trends and tropes in the regions around the world where you see growing a liberalism? Uh, I think those two things do combine in an, uh, an interesting uh, way. Although, again, with Russia, no one really wants to imitate the Russian model. 
Um, on the other hand, the kind of appeal that Putin has made to traditional values, which is laughable in a way given uh, some of his policies, but it's proved to have uh, attraction in certainly in Central Europe, but uh, other places uh, as well. Um, China, the attractions are different. As I say, I think it's uh, 95% uh, economic uh, what, what they've achieved that other countries uh, hope to achieve. And it is interesting. Orban, as you mentioned, has cited uh, these, uh, well, Russia as well, but mainly Asian countries, China, uh, India, and, and so on, as uh, models of success at the same time that he claims to be a proponent of Christian democracy. And uh, exactly how he fits his uh, uh, pro-Christian uh, tendencies with his uh, almost worshipful uh, uh, treatment of Asia is something that's uh, puzzling, I would say. Well, even his definition of Christian democracy doesn't really fit with the Christian Democrats' <laughs> definition of Christian democracy, as I understand. Uh, I would say that's true. The way most Christian democratic parties in Europe and Latin America have understood uh, their doctrine, it's one that supports liberal democracy, whereas Orban sees it as antithetical to liberal democracy. So earlier in the discussion, Shanti alluded to some of your writings uh, going back quite some time. And I think looking from that perspective, Mark, uh, when the overall view was that democracy was on a positive trajectory, the ideas that underlied it were not being contested, I think, in a meaningful way, as you've described it both during this discussion and in your, your writings. Now you have this both kind of the, the performance dimension of democracy coming into question, but some larger ideas about um, the prestige and the ideas that underlie democracy as a desirable form of government. Even if you have public opinion polling that largely indicates ordinary citizens want governments that are accountable, transparent. So you have these contradictions, but given the fact that the perception, at least today, is that there is um, some sort of value in the illiberal part of democracy, what what adjustments or what sorts of um, recalibrations are necessary to respond to the challenge, in your view? It's not an easy question to answer. I think one very important uh, element of this is uh, the geopolitical, which is also connected with, uh, with the economic. When, uh, you know, not that long ago, in the 90s certainly, 1990s, liberal democracy seemed like the only ticket to a successful, prosperous, powerful country. Um, at that point, China was just beginning its, uh, its economic uh, growth. And, you know, people said, well, there may be different ways for developing countries to uh, achieve growth. Some degree of authoritarianism may help them then. But by the time you graduate, become a mature, serious country, if you want to be successful, you want to achieve liberal democracy. Um, and that, I think, has been undermined by the China's economic success, but also the weakening of the liberal democracies in a, in a geopolitical sense. And I think 
you know, one thing that has the potential of restoring some of the prestige of liberal democracy is if Europe and particularly the United States regains some of the uh, geopolitical and economic momentum that they had uh, earlier. Now, is that going to happen? Well, I think it's uh, a real uh, it's a difficult question to predict, but I think there is some possibility that that really uh, could happen and that uh, China and Russia, who are the key players here, will run into uh, serious difficulties, which really could change in a, a significant way the, uh, the current uh, trends that clearly, I think, are favoring the authoritarians. So how would our uh, the themes of our conversation translate into support for democracy around the world? So, you know, you've said in the past, uh, making self-government work is not easy. A democratic government can be given to any people, but not every people can maintain it. And I think we're at a point now where we're really seeing this <laughs> being made manifest to us. Um, you know, if the past emphasis in working to support democracy was around democratic consolidation, what should the emphasis be now? Uh, I guess democratic reinvigoration, perhaps. Um, I mean, what had made me optimistic a decade or so ago still was the sense that uh, while democracy was hard to uh, make work effectively, still, if people wanted it, you might get the kind of pattern in which a country uh, built a democracy, it proved unable to maintain it, uh, but, you know, then it had an authoritarian period, but it would contain the seeds of a future attempt at democracy. And countries that had once been democratic, even if it was for a short period of time, generally have had a more successful record of implementing stable democracy in the future than those that have not had that experience. So as long as the desirability of democracy was generally acknowledged, most peoples and countries felt that way, the long-term perspective was favorable, even if there'd be lots of bumps along the road, so to speak. And so for that reason, I think, I mean, there, look, there are lots of specific things having to do with governance and so on that can be improved. And, you know, much of the work that National Endowment for Democracy and other democracy promotion organizations do is meant to help countries make democracy work. But still, I think over the longer term, the key question is the competition between liberal democracy and other forms of regimes. And it's only if liberal democracy comes to be seen again as the best way of organizing political life, as the ticket to a successful and uh, economically prosperous uh, country uh, and a stable country, will it then come to be, uh, will people come to see democracy as something they need to keep working at and make sure that it does succeed? And for all of the, the tough news in recent years, we do have some examples, Armenia, Ethiopia, among others, where uh, people in those societies have, have seen fit to try to change uh, controlling corrupt governments. And so the underlying 
desire for this is there. Right, no question. I think on the demand side, as people say, uh, democracy is still something that uh, most people want. Um, and again, when, when they have it and it stops working well, they become disillusioned. Uh, but I think all it takes is a short spell of authoritarianism to uh, disabuse them of the notion that uh, uh, democracy is not something that they value or that they need. And what I find striking in your observations, Mark, is that in waiting for the momentum to be reclaimed by the leading democracies, I think that's, that's right. And, and if you were to look at this a different way, you could argue that for one reason or another, countries like China and Russia have really taken the initiative. As Shanti noted, in Russia's case, it's largely to discredit and to raise questions about uh, the efficacy of democracy, the ideas that underlie it, its ostensible decadence, and so forth. In China's case, while there is an element of that, I think they've become more sophisticated in the arguments they're making. It's largely about the efficiency and ostensible efficiency of the Chinese system and the way it delivers uh, for its uh, people. Um, so for the initiative to be retaken in the ideas realm, what are the sorts of things that should happen that could catalyze that and get the ball rolling a bit, in your view? Well, in, in one way, I think the challenge from the authoritarians, especially from China and Russia, can have a salutary effect. I mean, I think it's already observable over the last couple of years that it's delivered a kind of wake-up call to uh, liberal Democrats around the world and to democratic uh, governments that uh, and they're no longer in the period, uh, uh, the sort of soporific post-Cold War uh, uh, era where there were no real threats on the horizon other than uh, terrorism and so on, that now we do have real competition, democracy does. And I think that's making people think anew about how to uh, solidify democracy, to make it work better, and to, and, and so in that sense, I think focusing on the authoritarian resurgence and the dangers it poses and what needs to be done to counter it actually can also help stimulate these internal improvements that are necessary for democracies to become more competitive again. Yeah, I mean, I think um, one thing that I'm getting from what you're saying is that while some would say, look, there's this authoritarian resurgence, but before we can address that in the democracies, we really need to focus on our own issues. But what you're essentially saying is these are intertwined. Exactly. You put it very well. <laughs> <laughs> So before we wrap up our conversation, I'd like to conclude with our final segment called What We're Reading, where we discuss what's at the top of our respective reading lists and might recommend to our listeners. I'd like to ask Mark to kick this off. Well, I've been reading a number of books uh, on populism um, these days, two that I would certainly uh, highlight and that uh, gave uh, rise to articles in the Journal of Democracy are Bill Galston's book, Anti-Pluralism. And I think it's the subtitle of something like The Populist Challenge to Liberal Democracy and Yasha Monk's The People Versus Democracy. I think these are very both very thoughtful books that explore the link between liberalism and democracy 
and also the challenge that populism is posing today. Another book I've just looked at, just begun reading, uh, which has an intriguing title, uh, is by Jan Zilanka at uh, Oxford, uh, and it's called uh, Counter-Revolution, The Retreat from Liberalism. I think it's an interesting notion to see what's happened in the last few years as a counter-revolution against uh, the events of 1989 to 91, uh, and I'm curious to see how uh, that argument will be spelled out. So I'm reading Timothy Snyder's The Road to Unfreedom, which explores Russian, Ukrainian, European, and American contemporary history to try to understand the rise of authoritarianism in Russia and the vulnerability of Western societies, and it touches on several of the issues we've discussed today. Um, it also delves into other areas of relevance to our podcast, including transnational kleptocracy and disinformation. He frames each chapter as a set of alternatives, individualism or totalitarianism, for example, which forces the reader to confront history as something unfolding before us, demanding of us not only attention but a deliberate choice. And for my part, I'm reading a really terrific cluster of articles in the current issue of the Journal of Democracy. The cluster is titled The Road to Digital Unfreedom, and it includes articles by Ron Debert, Stephen Feldstein, and Xiao Qiang. Uh, I'll just say a word about uh, Xiao Qiang's article here. It's titled President Xi's Surveillance State, and it touches on what is really um, an astonishing array of instruments that the Chinese authorities have brought to bear to surveil and monitor their own citizens. Uh, It's really applying formidable mechanisms to dominate the uh, realm of cyberspace. Um, a wrinkle in this article that goes beyond the um, normal areas that one can read about here in terms of how um, the digital realm is being applied to monitor citizens in, in China is how an ever-growing DNA database is increasingly integrated into other big data aspects of this uh, surveillance regime, uh, including facial recognition and increasingly Uh, parts of artificial intelligence. I think uh, it's fair to say that Beijing is already quite far along in building um, a modern surveillance regime, and there are a few evident checks or accountability mechanisms, if any, within the Chinese system to slow down this digital totalitarianism. Well, before we wrap up, Mark, I'd really just like to thank you so much for being a guest today. It's always edifying to learn from somebody who studied this for so long. And, um, you know, we really enjoyed talking with you today. Thanks. It's been a pleasure for me. That's all for today's episode of the Power 3.0 podcast. For more on the topic we discussed today, visit the Journal of Democracy website to read Mark Platner's January 2019 article, Illiberal Democracy and the Struggle on the Right. For further analysis of the themes we discussed today and will be examining in future podcast episodes, visit our blog, Power 3.0, Understanding Modern Authoritarian Influence. We also invite you to join the conversation with us on Facebook and Twitter, where you can find us using the handle at ThinkDemocracy. Additional resources are available on the NED website at www.ned.org ideas. If you enjoyed today's show, Please rate us on iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast app you use. Special thanks to our podcast production team at the International Forum, producer Jessica Ludwig, and our editing and sound engineer, Rochelle Faust. I'm Shanti Kalepel with Chris Walker and Mark Platner. We hope you enjoyed this discussion on democracy and the liberal temptation and invite you to tune in again for future Power 3.0 podcasts.